1: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 14, I, Claudius. Now, last week when we talked about the Roman cultural influences in Britain, there was a lot of discussion, at least in Augustus's day, that the Roman Empire was big enough. We didn't really need to go beyond the boundaries that we already have it. In fact, he set in place, uh, again, as I said last week, this principle that we have our boundaries. That is our limits. Don't go beyond that because beyond that's a mistake. Now, whether that exists as proper history or somebody is, you know, Suetonius, for example, looking back at it after the fact and saying this, I can't say for sure. But nonetheless, the Augustine idea of the size of the emperor, empire uh, is something of importance here because Britain's going to be one of the few places that the Romans will expand to. There will be a couple of others. However, this will be the one that they don't give back until they can't hold it anymore. Whereas the other ones they end up giving back for various reasons, this one they hold on to. Now, as we talked about previously, there was thoughts in the in the Roman Empire about taking Britain in the past. There was some logical conclusions that it just wasn't worth it because they base, you know, in some arguments, uh it was Hey, we already own Britain. We own all those kings. We don't need to go in and take anything and it saves us money and time and effort. But that was actually Strabo's argument. However, there was also the need of some of the gen- of some of the emperors to prove that they could fight, that they could take on a new project. The emperors only ex- ability to command their loyalty of their troops was through how they could help them. And we know as time goes along, the troops will become a big key to how we end up with the military we do, how we end up with a force that is very much the only reason why an emperor usually holds the throne. And you end up with this whole problem of the army generally holds all the cards and everybody else just kind of bends to whatever they decide the leader is and they decide who the emperor is. And this will become very apparent as we go along and get out of the Julio-Claudians. And even amongst them, this becomes a bit of a problem. But as Tiberius uh, passes away, and we end up having um, Caligula, or Gaius as he's known in the sources, Caligula, believes that he needs to have a win. He needs a victory. So they start looking at taking on Britain. Now, At the time, they called the English Channel the Ocean. So if he wanted to go and take on Britain, he had to deal with Oceanus. And, well, let's just put it this way. This is kind of Caligula in a nutshell, really. He's kind of kooky. Um, He was always kind of weird all the way through, pretty much after the first year of his reign. He did some really strange things. Some think he did it for sarcasm's sake, kind of to tweak the nose of senators. Some think he just really was off his rocker and something was physically wrong with him in the head. And thus, what he effectively did was he took his troops to the edge of France, walked out onto the seashore, picked up a bunch of seashells, and claimed that as his booty for having defeated Oceanus <laughs> because he sent somebody out with whips to lash the water and teach it a lesson. <laughs> So that was his great victory, and he kind of throws himself a little mini-triumph over it and everything. It's very strange. But it was pretty much Caligula in a nutshell. He was weird. I mean, at least by reputation, he was seemed to be very, very odd as emperor, and didn't last very long pretty much because of that. He ends up being assassinated. When he's assassinated, they take his uncle, who to that point had been considered very much a weak member of the julio-claudian uh, community considered to be slightly dumb in some cases has been portrayed as a stutterer that's in both the contemporary sources and the later sources there there just is a sense that he's just not really emperor material and thus the reason why he was never really considered a threat by those in and around him i mean caligula treated him like a buffoon most like Tiberius ignored him his father there's just generally a sense of of ignorance towards him so he comes to power by accident effectively and and some will argue basically he is the face in front of the camera while there's still someone sock puppeting him in the back now whether that's true or not we have no way of knowing and this is something we're going to talk about so i wanted to first off before we actually get to the proper invasion i wanted to talk a little bit about sources here we're finally getting into written sources, which is always wonderful because it gives you another layer of of understanding why things happened. It gives you something beyond sort of the usual archaeology. And archaeology is great, and it will always fill in blanks as much as it can be filled in in places where we just don't understand, particularly with poorer citizens and poorer people who don't have a voice in either powerful spots, aren't considered important enough to have biographers or aren't members of clergy who did a lot of the writing later on. So they will never be a big target of interest until much later. So we don't get a lot of that. So without archaeology, we wouldn't know what the day-to-day life of most people is in any point. And the only other time we really get a feeling of that is in the Roman period. And that actually comes from when you'll see points where literate people were actually writing things on walls, basically making graffiti and... Cursing somebody or celebrating the local gladiators being the best athlete, blah blah blah, you know, and and those kind of things. In fact, they they were found quite a lot in Pompeii, and have been found in in burial areas as well. That there's this handwriting of people scratching the stuff, and we have found one of the great things that has been found recently. In fact, in 2016, is letters that have been written on wooden paper, kind of. If that makes sense, because of course paper is from wood, but it's not. This is actually like bark almost. It's not been pulped down the way paper is, and it's it's much rougher. But it survives better. And when placed into boggy areas that steal away the oxygen, they will actually survive quite a lot. We found evidence. The archaeologists have actually found evidence of it at uh, Hadrian's Wall, uh, in uh, a place called Vindolanda, um, and just recently this year there was some found in London. And these are actually some of the oldest writings in Britain that have actually been found. And these ones are great because they actually come from the first century AD. They come from the period of invasion and acculturation. And they're interesting documents. And we're going to get into them, but not today. But just so you're aware, I mean, the average person may have been literate, may have been writing stuff down, but we just don't have a lot of evidence of it. So what do we have as evidence of the invasion of Britain in eighty forty three Well, I think the biggest problem we run into is Tacitus is actually writing uh, the annals of Imperial Rome just a few years beyond this, like about 50 years later. And it's unfortunate we don't have all of it. And unfortunately, one of the big things that we do lose is the invasion of Rome, of Rome into Britain. So, we don't have an eyewitness or close to eyewitness account. The thing with Tacitus is his father-in-law actually served in the military in Britain during this period of time, actually continues to serve beyond that, goes away from Britain for a while and then is brought back as the governor of of this new Britannic province sometime later on and will be basically the biography we use to understand how Roman Britain worked in the late first century and kind of how things developed. And when we look at Wales, again, same sort of situation. There's a paucity of information. And unfortunately, what we do have, and I say unfortunate because it's not too bad, but still. One is Suetonius. Now, Suetonius is writing basically beyond the generations that would have grown up in that era. So he doesn't have eyewitness accounts anymore, necessarily. He has writings, and he has access to the imperial documents, which gives him an advantage over a lot of other writers at this point, but it's interesting because he is very derogatory towards this whole process of going over to Britain. In fact, in effect, he basically says that it was a very boring campaign, and that uh it was merely a matter of marching to use uh Thomas Jefferson's terminology about uh the invasion of Canada in eighteen twelve You know he figured it was just oh it was too easy. Part of the reason why he feels like this, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth, is because when Claudius finally does go to Britain, he's there for a grand total of just over two weeks and then comes home. And the feeling is, is that had it been a real war with real battles, Claudius would have been there longer, there would have been more heartache and trouble. Of course, Britain becomes a bit of a military nightmare for quite some time. It becomes, To use a Vietnam War example, it becomes a bit of a quagmire for a while to the point where you have some like uh Nero who at one point talks about pulling troops out of Britain and abandoning Britain because things get so bad with the revolts. So you have this sense that oh god, what have we gotten ourselves into kind of. <laughs> so but Suetonius just kind of blows it off. Ah, eh, it wasn't a big deal. Claudius went over, he came back. Meh. They just basically walked in, took everything. It's all cool. So where do we get most of our information from? Most of our information actually comes from a writer named Cassius Dio. He is writing, however, in the 2nd or 3rd century, probably more like the 3rd century. Uh, So obviously he's well past point of memory. There's nobody who remembers any of it. There may not even be writings around at this point because there's been so many changes of who the emperors are. And if you know anything about regime changes, there is a tendency to burn stuff and to get rid of stuff. And to be fair, who knows how long, you know, the papers of these emperors and the written documents and the journals, if they aren't copied constantly, do they last? And, And are they surviving long enough for Dio to read them? Dio actually claims he's got a hold of papers and is actually writing from them. And he may be. But again, he could just be making some of it up. And we're going to get into this problem again later in the Middle Ages because you have uh, guys like uh, Geoffrey and that who have a tendency to claim this ancient literature that they found. Uh, Ninus, who writes the, uh, at that point, predominant history of ancient Britain. He also claims to have records and evidences that we don't have. We don't even know what he was looking at. We can only sort of guess in some cases. And that traditional problem continues right up to the modern era where you have guys who say, Oh, hey, I have these documents I just found in this chest somewhere. And I'm bringing them forward and look at this and aren't they wonderful? And wow, they fill in all the blanks and all these things we just didn't know about. And they're great, but what happens if they're made up? What happens? And and if you think about it, a writer who's writing two to 300 years after the fact, heck, a writer who's writing 20 years after the fact, putting words in the mouths of some of the uh, people in the conflict, puts words in the mouths of people that they could never actually know what they said, based on the fact that they were on the other side. And they didn't even have writing at the time. <laughs> like, he's got Boudicca saying stuff, for example, that we have no idea she ever says this stuff. We just know that that there's a claim that she said this stuff. And that's the problem. When you get that kind of stuff, historians will get very skeptical because immediately, you know, the, the alarms go up and you say, well, is this truly what's going on? Probably not. And all we can tell is, is there ba- things to back this up? And this is a problem in ancient writing all the time. I mean, from the Greeks to the Romans and even into the Middle Ages, we have to hope that the writers are telling the truth because we have really only some archaeological evidence to say that there's truth that we can point to and say, yes, that definitely must have happened because it lines up with the historical record enough to say this probably did likely happen. For example, the great building programs of Augustus that changed Rome as a city from a mostly brick to a mostly marble, happened in his time period. We have evidence of it because, hey, some of the buildings still survive. B, he wrote it down, this great big huge whacking document to make sure you all knew about it. And then C, uh, there was evidence of it in other places and other people talked about it. So you could say, yeah, there's enough evidence here across every genre of study to say, yeah, this This is exactly what happened. If you look at the evidence towards the invasion of Britain, there are some basic things that make perfect sense. There are some basic things that we can say, yes, this must have happened because evidence and the history line up. There's a lot of other things, though, where it's just, we have to take their word for it. And Dio is one of those guys. I mean, he's not well known for being trustworthy as a writer, but he's what we have, he's what we have to work with, and even Suetonius, to a lesser extent, is just as bad. They're writing down stuff that, hey, sells books, and so, you know, they'll write the salacious stuff. They're the ones who kind of define the druids. They're the ones who kind of define what we understand Britons to be at that time. In fact, Tacitus is very dismissive of the Britons at the time, basically counting them. One of his quotes is he talks about that uh, maybe the British lived there their whole lives, like, as a people had always been there. Maybe they had immigrated from somewhere else, but who knows? They're just barbarians. You can't trust them. And so that kind of dismissive behavior in the writing helps to kind of color things in a great way. I mean, it's a wonderful insight into Tacitus and his, his hypocrisy of saying, you know, these guys are noble because they're so independent and free, yet, nah, they're not really worth listening to because, hey, they're just barbarians after all. And so you have that wonderful understanding of how people think. And Dio is like that. He will have his own. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
0: I'm the host Elliot Gates and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
1: Agenda his own ideas and a lot of the the ancient writers are aiming they're telling morality stories or they're telling things that they want the people of their day to understand and just like us. But at the same time, they're doing it with a with a specific thing in mind. It's more like a biblical story than it is like a proper history document. There's no sense of pulling bias out of it. There's no sense of trying to take your opinion and holding it back and let the story tell itself. It's, hey, I'm going to indoctrinate my opinion through the whole document. So with all of that in mind, let's talk about the actual battles, shall we? So... The invasion happens in eighty forty three, and I think, interestingly, and this, again, comes from Dio, so take what you will from it, but he tells the story that they try to cross. They cross in three divisions of boats. Uh, the claims are anywhere from about 800 to nearly a 1,000 ships carrying tens of thousands of men and equipment and horses across the sea, across the English Channel, into Britain from around uh, the northern coasts of France, and when they are traveling, it takes them so long. I mean, there's one claim I read where they said it took 20 hours to cross the Channel. They bring up the idea that by the time that the Romans have gotten to the night, it's pitch black. They don't know where they're going. They've lost hope. There's a sense of dismay all of a sudden they see a star which chases to the west, a, a, a shooting star, or a meteor shower, chasing to the west, lights to the west, as they call it. And that brings them the feeling that, no, we're on the right path, we shouldn't turn around, we should go forward. And Dio writes us into the story quite a lot. Like, there's there's an incident, a pretty interesting incident, which starts off this whole thing, where leader of the group, Alias Plautius, uh is the senator who's given charge of taking command of this group and to actually lead the group into britain to defend the general the king from britain who came asking for help of claudius claudius then takes his troops and they prepare to leave and then the troops just basically say nope we don't want to go we don't want to cross the ocean the ocean's scary you know th- there's demons there you never know what could happen you know why would we cross a god this is this is the republic you know, we've been told this is where we should stay, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a, there's a concept of, of, of no, you, no, mate, we don't want to go. And he actually sends out a freedman who is a former slave named uh, Narcissus, as the story goes. Narcissus goes out and he speaks to the troops and the s- troops are outraged. Now, why are they outraged? Well, a lot of these troops are going to be nobles in some cases. In some cases, they're going to be men who are rich. None of these people are slaves or former slaves. So to have this guy get up in front of them and speak was considered a grand insult, first of all. Second of all, he's probably calling them out for being cowards. So again, there's that. And then on top of it all, they turn around and basically say, what is this? Like, Io Saturnalia? Go away. And I.O. Saturnalia, um, I don't know how, if you're familiar with Boxing Day as it became in Victorian Britain. I.O. Saturnalia has some similarities to that. It does make me wonder if that's kind of where the idea came from. Uh, I.O. Saturnalia is the idea that you take your slave or your freedman or that, and for one day, they become the person in charge. And as I say, that's a little bit like the Victorian era of Boxing Day and, and what it meant uh, in Britain at the time. Uh, obviously not something celebrated in other parts of the world. But they out—they were outraged. They basically said, well, who, who died and made you boss, for lack of a better phrasing? And they said, fine, we'll show this, dug on freedmen." And they turn around and decide, no, we're going to go. By the time they decide to go, it's getting late in the day. They go out into the water. As seems to be the case with the Romans, every time they tried to go across to Britain, they seem to not really understand the maritime nature of the English Channel, which makes me think that they didn't have a lot of help from the local Gallic communities. Because you know the Gallic communities would know, this is high tide, this is slack water, this is when things are, are good to go, this is when you don't go out, this is when it's dangerous. But they never seem to ask, or they never have somebody helping them, or maybe there's a lot of... We'll get one back on the Romans by basically telling them false information. And so the Romans barrel out, the weather's miserable, at least to an extent. They don't talk about losses, so it couldn't have been that bad. But they do talk about the fact that people are are becoming discouraged. Now, is it because it's taking them forever to cross the channel? Is it the fact that, you know, when you're crossing the channel, you can see the other side if you cross the right points. You can actually see France from Britain and Britain from France. But it feels like you make no progress for a while. And so if you are traveling And during the day, as you're looking, you don't make any progress, you don't make any progress, you you know, apparently. Then when you finally do make progress, it's pitch black, so you have no idea where you are at that point. And so you have no idea if you're actually getting closer to the shore, if you're off into the main part of the ocean, you know, or you're heading back to France, for all you know, or Gaul in this case. So with all of that in mind, you can understand that the Roman soldiers would have been very perturbed, very close to probably causing trouble. And, of course, in an era where you believe in gods and you believe a god of the ocean is not necessarily helpful to you, you might expect him to be a problem. Uh, That also then lends problems, right? Because you start to say, well, the gods are against us. We should turn around. Eventually, however, they do land. Like I said, they have their sign from the gods to say, no, 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 keep going that direction. They then land. And unlike Julius Caesar, when he lands, there's nobody there. They come to the Isle to the edge of Britain, and they've come somewhere around the Isle of Thanet, similar to the areas where the Anglo-Saxons came in. They land there, probably spread out quite a bit because, like he said, like Dio talks about the three divisions, it's probably because the boats have gotten spread, and they're probably in three main groups when they hit the land, and then they have to meet back up, probably thankfully for them, they've landed in allied territory. And so there isn't a hostile force waiting to kill them. And so when they talk about them being no one to greet them or no one to deal with them, it's probably more likely that what happened was the only greeting they got was probably an expected one. And it was from allies, not enemies, who helped them kind of get their bearings, get themselves reformed, so they didn't have sort of what happened to Julius Caesar in his first landing in 55 BC, where he had it go all wrong. And so... The Roman troops have landed, and they expect this to be sort of like the way they deal with a lot of other things. And they end up finding that the enemy won't come near them. They run away. They chase them. And every time they chase them, it's like swatting at flies. They hit one way. The other, they're hit from behind. They're hit from another way. They're attacked. They have raids on them. They have needles, pinprick type attacks against them. But there's never really a stand-up battle that happens at that point. And so you get this sort of sense of frustration from the Romans, as Dio describes it, about the fact that they, uh, as he puts it, he says, they would not come close quarters with the Romans. They took refuge in swamps in the forest, hoping to wear out the invaders in fruitless effort, so that just as in the days of Julius Caesar, they would sail back with nothing accomplished. That makes you understand what's going on here. And and it's obvious that the British realize that they can't take the Romans on head on. The only way they could have known that is if they fought them before. If there was enough people around that remembered the battles in Gaul 80, 90 years ago, passed it on to their their children, and probably there were some mercenaries that probably fought for Roman in Germania. These kind of things do go on. So probably they're well aware of what the problem is of fighting Rome in a head-on battle when the Romans have the upper hand, and so they spend a lot of time trying to avoid that. However, eventually they were defeated. Uh, They defeat uh, Caractacus, and then Tagodumnus, and then the sons of ceno and these kings are all perceived as being very important in the southeast area. They defeat them, and Again, going back to the Roman mentality about other people, Dio has to put this in. He says, But the Britons were not free and independent, but were divided into groups under various kings. And so, in other words, he looks down on them because they aren't considerably one form of government, but are many forms of government. And typically, at the time, likely had a high king or a high general who basically led the troops, and they Would respond to them, but of course, they might have different fighting styles, they might have different weapons, some of them might have chariots, some might not. And so, you're not as cohesive as a unit as someone who has the same sort of shield as your buddy next to you on both sides. You have the same gladius, you have the same helm, you have that same great big huge long pike which sticks out in front of you, and your ability to fight as a unit has been co opted and developed over years and years and years of fighting and there's forty thousand of you. That makes a huge difference to what the Romans can do here. They've come over en masse, they're not fooling around, and the enemy might know that they can't defeat them, but at the same time they also know that they have to defeat them if they're to survive. So they have to have battles with them. And every time they get into these battles, they they try and use the land to their advantage. You can tell that because they use rivers quite often. They're using forests and swamps and things of that nature that, you know, like I said, Dio describes this sort of stuff going on in a Vietnam War style battle. However, the problem you run into is is that we get this problem of there's just so many Romans and they're so coordinated and they're so well thought out. Like Dio talks about the fact that they send German mercenaries across the river because they can swim even with their armor on, get on the other side, build a bridgehead, like develop a bridgehead. Then the rest of the troops will come across, however they come across, and then they just continue to build out this beachhead into something bigger and into something much more aggressive and much better than what they started with. And they will do that throughout these initial battles. And eventually they get to the main areas, the main market towns of the southeast, and the hill forts that they're now running into, and they start to take them. And now all of a sudden the foothold is established. And the southeast corner of Britain is now Roman. And the Romans will then, from there on out, continue to send troops out, continue to spread out until they've conquered most of what we call Britain. And this is where everything starts up. We're going to hold off on the rest of this story until next week. Next week we'll talk about how this develops and how it becomes a Welsh problem. Because, let me tell you, the Welsh tribes have been have not been sitting back waiting for this to happen. They have been developing ideas, tactics, ways to fight the Romans that will become very important. And you'll hear these at least two of these Welsh tribes quite a lot, because they are the main combatants for the next little while. And so, Roman Wales will come out of this, and you'll see how this all develops. But, as I said, when they landed, they did meet up. With battles, but nothing where it was a major battle, and so thus it seems like a boring war to a Roman. You haven't got a major battle to talk about as an author. Ugh, that's kind of dull. You know, it, it's just a one long running needle poke that ends up getting caught out and squashed, and then they're defeated. So a local area of land is now conquered. As I said, we'll go into more as as the Romans start to move out and some of the emperors of the future are involved, and we will talk more about what they did and how they did, and then we'll have to talk about the revolts and problems that they run into, and specifically with uh, a couple of tribes in the Siluris and the Ordovices, who will be troublesome, troublesome tribes for the Romans for at least the first century. And we'll talk about that all next week. Thank you everyone for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye! This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at
0: distractionsmedia.com.
1: What's up, guys? We just launched a Patreon to help us bring in some money for upgrades and advertising. There's a lot of cool tiers on there that you should check out, and you can get all the extra content for just $5 a month. Check it out at patreon.com distractionsmedia.